Welcome to Boston Confidential, Bean Town's True Crime Podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail in Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name is Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator in the metropolitan Boston area, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I can certainly direct you to the right individual or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. I've been receiving a lot of emails from listeners, and I love it. I love engaging with you guys, so please keep it up. And if you want to get a hold of me, the best way is probably email, and that's barry at bostonconfidential.net. And I've received several emails, one of which I didn't get an opportunity to return, and I believe I should probably answer it on the air anyway. Tammy from South Boston asked, how did I get into podcasts and what other podcasts am I listening to right now? And right now I'm listening to several podcasts. True Crime Garage is an excellent one. And probably my favorite of all time is Missing Mara Murray. And that is constructed by two guys from Worcester, Massachusetts. And they have done an excellent job on this case. They took this case from beginning to end, and it's a long way. Mara had disappeared from New Hampshire in the early 2000s, and it's quite a mystery. And speaking of that podcast, they have the best opening music I've ever heard. It's quite haunting. Check it out. Missing Maura Murray. And the other reason I got into podcasting was I just thought there was a dearth of true crime podcasts for the metropolitan Boston area. And I'm trying to fill that need. And I hope you think I'm handling that burden decently at this point. I'm thinking of ways to figure out how to engage more with people. I kind of feel like the podcast medium is a one-way street me talking to you. And I don't enjoy that as much as I do interacting with people. So I'm trying to get some more ideas going. I know some people put these podcasts on YouTube and whatnot, but I'm kind of at a crossroads, definitely going to continue the podcast, but I'm trying to make it more multimedia. And I'll keep you posted on that. If any of my listeners have any suggestions in that area, please feel free to email me anytime. But today's episode, we're back to some tough sledding, guys. The episode is Susan Taraskowitz and Saugus from 1992. So I guess we have to jump back into the time machine on this one. I gave you a little bit of a break with the Brinks job. was kind of a lighthearted tale, but we're back at it. Some tough sledding today. Susan Taraskowitz was 27 when she was killed. She worked for... Northwest Airlines, which became Delta a few years after this. But Susan grew up in Saugus, Massachusetts, in a middle-class family. And I've seen some family members, especially the mother, on the news regarding this case. And they seem like extremely decent people, but they have that North Shore edge to them. And if you're not from Boston, I'll tell you a little bit about it. Saugus is just north of Boston, and it's a middle-class town, but 
it's also working class. And when I see Marlene Taraskowitz on the news during these interviews for this case, she's kind of the epitome of a North Shore mom. Super nice, will do anything for you, but will not take any guff. She just doesn't seem like she suffer fools well. And that's kind of the persona of people on the North Shore of Boston. And I kind of smile when I see that because it's just so accurate. Susan grew up in Saugus and was a good student. She played soccer, was involved in sports, but activities mostly focused around her family. During my research, I found that she kind of liked to go overboard for Halloween for her nieces and the neighborhood kids. And she really enjoyed it, made some of the stuff herself. So she seemed like a really good person. Susan ultimately ended up working for Northwest Airlines. And if you're asking, what is Northwest Airlines? It was a smaller airline. It was ultimately purchased by Delta Airlines and they're not around anymore. But Susan really enjoyed her job there. I think at least to some extent, she wasn't going to quit. That much is certain. But Susan endured some hellacious harassment by people who she worked with. But she kept on persevering through and she became the first ramp attendant. It was a big promotion. She was the first woman appointed to this position. And that really further alienated the people that were harassing her. And when I'm saying harassment, I don't think you're really getting it. This was sexual harassment, personal harassment of every sort. And it's unconscionable what happened to Susan at Northwest Airlines. During my research, I came across some case findings from the Mass Commission Against Discrimination. And these suits were filed by Susan Taraskowitz's family post-mortem. And Susan had kept a diary of what these people were doing to her. They were writing graffiti about her directly on airplanes in the break room. They called her a see you next Tuesday. You have to spell that out. I'm not going to say the word. Right to her face. She was physically harassed, mentally tortured really here. Her union ultimately let her down. She was harassed. They were trying to make her quit. She wouldn't. And she fought for this promotion through her union. The only reason they were keeping her from it was that she was a woman. And this is 1992. So you try to put today's rules and mores into the history books, and it just doesn't fit. They were cruel to her. They were abusive to her, and nobody helped her. Her union let her down. Sorry, guys, but that's the truth. The atmosphere at Northwest Airlines during this time was that of an, I'd say it's a mix between Animal House and the Mafia. I think these guys who she worked with thought they were gangsters. They intimidated each other. They physically fought each other. And three of them were the ringleaders. And I'm going to tell you exactly who they are. And that's one of my problems with this case. I feel like the focus of this case is all on Susan. But these people who harassed her were just no good, and they should be brought to the forefront. It was ingenious that the family purchased billboards with Susan's image on it around Logan Airport and on Boston's North Shore. I thought that was a great idea to keep the memory of Susan's case alive. 
But what I feel like has been missing in all the media reports is the focus on the suspects in this case. I guess I shouldn't call them suspects, persons of interest. And in the MCAD documents, the discrimination case, it's horrible. And these people would naturally be considered persons of interest. So let's get to the names of the people who so enjoyed tormenting Susan Taraskowitz and others at this animal house of an airline called Northwest Airlines. The first person I want to discuss is Robert Brooks. He had started in the late 80s at Northwest, and he was a baggage handler. And that's how Susan came on as well. She was a baggage handler. And they had a brief relationship. I don't believe it was a super serious relationship, but they were friendly. But their relationship took a turn at Northwest. At one point, Robert Brooks was upset at a Boston Bruins loss, and he picked up and smashed Susan's radio off the wall for no apparent reason. That's the type of atmosphere we're dealing with here. He was forced by the union or the management to buy her a new radio or whatever, but all of these union penalties and company penalties fell short. It just didn't change anything there. And one of the problems was that they needed the union at this point. The company was going through some tough times and they were a public company. And at a certain point, they were trying to take it private, but there was such a heavy debt load. They couldn't afford union problems at Logan Airport. So that's kind of the background on that. So I can't describe enough this hellacious atmosphere. As I mentioned, Susan had a relationship with Robert Brooks. It quickly fizzled and they became friends or just workmates, but he is a key player in this. So put a pin in his name. The next guy I want to discuss is Joseph Nuzzo, N-U-Z-Z-O. And according to these documents from the MCAD, that's the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination, and they handle all labor employee relations type cases, at least initially. So in April 1989, that's when Robert Brooks smashed her radio in the break room or someplace at work. And at that time, she had to go to the union, to management, to try to get the radio replaced and an apology for Mr. Brooks. I don't know if that was ever forthcoming, but she did get the radio. So that same month, April 89, Susan claims, and, and it seems believable, that she saw Mr. Nuzo physically assault two male ramp workers in the break room, at least according to union documents filed in the MCAD case, because he objected to their political views. When Sue Taraskowitz tried to intervene, he called her a effing see you next Tuesday. So that started another round of union complaints. But in August 89, Mr. Nuzzo allegedly threatened another worker. I know I'm going to butcher this name, Paulo Alcofrodo, because he was an immigrant from Brazil and still spoke English pretty poorly. Joseph Nuzzo refused to cooperate with any type of investigation into this case. And I think it led to this being a fireable offense, finally. And in this case, Sue Taraskowitz did testify against Robert Nuzzo. Nuzzo was ultimately fired, but only briefly. Don't get your hopes up. That led to more 
in an upgraded attempt to drive Sucharaskowitz out of Northwest. At this point, the harassment became unbearable. There were drawings of Sucharaskowitz in the men's bathroom. It would be erased and back again the next day. Management did very little to help Sue in this situation. Sue also began receiving crank phone calls and asked the airline to monitor her phone, which they did. This case just seems to be getting bigger and bigger. I don't know why management didn't come down there and fire everybody involved in this case. It's just simply beyond me. Sue Taraskowitz wasn't the only one harassed at Northwest Airlines. In November 89, the union received several letters from a co-worker of Mr. Taraskowitz, Kip Hedges. In these letters, which is also filed with the MCA, Hedges also suffered some severe harassment. He stated that a tiny gang of workers has developed a pattern of violence and threats. In the filing, Hedges also stated that he too had been assaulted by Nuzo for no apparent reason. Hedges also complained that a target, a pistol target with 11 bullet holes, was taped to a refrigerator in the break room. Kill Hedges was scrawled on the top of the paper target. So that's the type of atmosphere Sue was forced to work in. She asked for help repeatedly, and none came, and none would. So you might be thinking, what was the, the company's response to all this? So after they received the letters from Mr. Hedges and the complaints from Sue Taraskowitz and others, the management held a meeting and tried to diffuse the tension. And they later published an article in, in the company newspaper condemning sexual harassment and workplace intimidation. And that's it. Basically crickets, right? During this time frame, Sue continued to work and did what appears to be outstanding work for Northwest. I don't know why they, they didn't want to help her more. And I think I misstated something earlier. She started with Northwest in May of 87 as a baggage handler and received several promotions. And the last one she had received was to ramp agent. And that was the one where she was the first woman. She really had to fight for that job with her union or fight with the union. I'm not even sure. But she was eventually promoted to ramp agent and she was pretty adamant that these people would not run her out of Northwest Airlines. She seemed to really love it, some portion of it anyway. Okay, so Joseph Nuzo was eventually fired for a culmination of all these episodes. Sue had testified against them, and he, Joseph Nuzo, blamed Sue directly, calling her an effing CNX Tuesday. He also, during this time frame, began stalking her at home. At one point, he's believed to have slashed her tires. So the harassment really just continued. And also during this time frame, Nuzo is lobbying to get his job back with Northwest Airlines. There's one other individual I'd like to tell you about that is not covered in the news when Susan Taraskowitz's case comes up. He habitually harassed Sue as well. And his name is Joseph Ferretta. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Joseph Ferretta Jr., F-A-R-E-T-R-A. This guy was cited in March of 1991. He had written a letter to a female co-worker apologizing for his physical threatening, sexually abusive, and slanderous remarks. And 
he agreed at the insistence of the company, imagine that, to stop bothering these women. So I think that included Sutra Askowitz as well. So there's three ringleaders at Northwest Airlines that just made life a living hell. It seems like for everybody, but specifically for Sue. All right, guys, I don't have enough time to tell you about all the harassment. So I'm going to end the harassment portion here. But that's a good overview of it. People also urinated in Susan's locker. Tampons and sanitary napkins were left all around the break room when they knew women were going to be in there. All right, guys, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to give you a break. Right after break, I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell you about what I think was the real cause of Susan's death. Are you a local or international law firm that needs accurate, comprehensive, and timely background investigations and litigation support? Let Impact Due Diligence Investigations do the legwork. If there's information you need for a case, we'll find it. When you need to know, call Impact. Visit us at impactduediligence.com. All right, guys, we're back from break. And now I want to tell you about what I think really got Susan killed. There was a credit card theft ring operating out of Northwest Airlines, and I believe that started in 1990. According to grand jury indictments, Joseph Nuzo told Mr. Ferretta that he was and had been stealing cards, you know, beginning in about 1990. They'd make purchases at Bay State Lobster and Filene's Basement, sporting goods stores and all that. So they'd steal the credit cards, use them, group all of the stuff that they bought together and sell it. The way they did this was they'd get the manifest of the flights coming in. If a certain container weighed more than 800 pounds before a flight, they knew it was uh, likely carrying credit cards that usually come in from Sioux Falls or Nebraska. And for some reason they were routed to Logan. They were stolen and used in the aforementioned manner. These guys weren't making big money. They were getting 10% of the available credit on it, but it was still a moneymaker. And pretty soon they knew that the federal government would be onto them, I think. So this was going all around Sue Taraskowitz. In February of 92, Susan Taraskowitz won a union grievance and was promoted, as I mentioned before, as the first female ramp supervisor. Now, some of these guys had been fired, disciplined, so they're kind of rotating in and out. But the credit card fraud ring went on. And they were afraid of Miss Taraskowitz because she was now the first female ramp supervisor. She was initially denied the position, but went through a union and was eventually awarded to her. So they were afraid that she could limit their ability and access to the planes, including baggage handling, and that's where the thefts were occurring. So this is where Susan Traskowitz meets this credit card scheme. She was not involved in this, and by all accounts, she really didn't know about it. She knew about the whole, whole toilet bowl of harassment. She knew about how poorly this airline was run, but she was not involved in the credit card thefts or the ring at all. By the summer of 1992, the harassment had actually ramped up, and now Sue was a little afraid because pictures of a coffin with her name on it was drawn in a public bathroom at Northwest and other graffiti threatening her life as well. 
So on September 12th, 1992, Sue was scheduled to work the 11 to 7 shift. That was her usual shift around 1 a.m., which would have been September 13th, 1992. She offered to go out and get her co-workers lunch. I don't know where she was going, but she volunteered to go out. One of her co-workers said she had been very quiet and withdrawn during this shift. So I don't know if something was wrong with Sue or she was walking around her usual jovial self, but she punched her time card out and drove out of the parking lot. She was never seen alive again. So when she doesn't come back to work, her co-workers panic. They punch her back in like she had returned to work, but I think they were just trying to help her out, thinking something happened. She decided not to come back, maybe something else. I don't know, but they did punch her back in. So on the morning of September 14th, 1992, Sue's family is frantic and they go to the police. What they hadn't known is a body had been discovered around the same time. A passerby had called the police after noticing blood dripping from the trunk of what was later determined to be Susan's car that was parked outside of an auto body shop on Route 1A in Revere. 27-year-old Sue Taraskowitz had been repeatedly stabbed and beaten to death. She was also strangled and placed in the trunk of her own car. It was believed she was on her way to get sandwiches. People at the airport would have known that as well. The Revere Police and the Massachusetts State Police started investigating Susan's homicide. Actually, about a year before, the federal grand jury began serving subpoenas seeking evidence on the credit card theft ring from Northwest at Logan Airport. And this was a much bigger operation than originally thought, and it was revealed that at one point, $7.5 million was stolen using these credit cards that were stolen directly from the planes at Northwest. So when it became apparent that people were being subpoenaed federally for this theft ring, one of the people who had harassed her previously, Robert Brooks, almost immediately asked to be transferred out of Logan Airport, and that request was granted. He ended up in Minnesota. Pretty soon, Robert Brooks is investigated, and he folds like a cheap suit. He begins to cooperate in the credit card scam with the FBI. The FBI, the Revere Police, and the Massachusetts State Police now believed that Sue had been targeted for retaliation. They thought she was a rat in this case, and especially Nuzo. Nuzo reports to Brooks that he believes that she's a rat, and he had been harassing her. Remember now, he had been fired at one point. All of this kind of overlaps a little bit, but he had been stalking Sue, and Robert Brooks turns informant, basically, and relays Nuzo's obsession with Sue to the FBI and every other agency that's investigating. So during this time frame, now it's 1994, 1995, Brooks is still cooperating in the credit card investigation. But he says during the time that Sue was murdered, he was in Minneapolis with his wife and hadn't spoken to Nuzo in quite some time. 
and the investigation goes on. But now it's the fall of 96 and the United States attorney convened a second grand jury. Now it's a murder grand jury looking into Sutraskowitz's case. So as the murder grand jury, which is separate from the credit card grand jury, begins hearing information. So in October of 96, Brooks is forced to return to Boston and testify. During a two-day meeting with law enforcement agents, Brooks learns that Nuzo is the target of the murder grand jury, and they were seeking to determine whether Nuzo assassinated Taraskowitz to ensure his silence from the credit card case. So that's where we are with the case at that point. The FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office grant Brooks limited immunity, which means if he testifies truthfully, nothing will be held against them. So during the murder grand jury, Brooks totally flips on Nuzio and relays that Joseph Nuzio blamed Taraskowitz, Sue Taraskowitz, for his six-month suspension. And then Nuzio repeatedly stated his staunch belief that Taraskowitz was a snitch who blew the whistle on the credit card scheme. So the FBI, as they usually do, after Brooks testified, they go back and try to corroborate what he said. And in June of 1997, the FBI confronted Brooks with some documentation showing that he was not at work in Minnesota on the night of the murder. So they have his time cards. They throw them down on the table and say, you weren't at work. Also, he stated that he hadn't spoken to Joseph Nuzio in quite some time. Well, they throw down some long-distance telephone bills stating that, yeah, he had talked to him that weekend prior to Sue's murder. The FBI was furious with Brooks, threw out his deal, and charged him with perjury and two counts of obstruction of justice. I'd have to say he would have been facing 15 years in federal prison at that point. So the Traskowitz family seems to be moving towards justice in this case. Brooks folded. Nuzo seemed to be the target of the murder grand jury. Brooks eventually pleaded guilty to some reduced charges in the credit card theft ring. He pled guilty to mail theft and credit card fraud, and the FBI provided an affidavit that he had provided significant cooperation in the case. So Brooks testified against all those guys and ratted them out. Ultimately, there were 37 federal convictions for the credit card case and 19 state convictions on other charges that were within only the state of Massachusetts domain. $7.5 million was believed to have been stolen. And it seems like this investigation and the credit card thing went pretty well. But where I'm perplexed is what happened to the murder grand jury? No indictments were given. They did not come back with a true bill. There didn't seem to be much physical evidence or it's just testimonial evidence from Brooks to Nuzo. The Massachusetts State Police and the Revere State Police have never said what evidence, physical evidence, they recovered from the car. And it's hard for me to believe that these guys were forensic geniuses, right? There'd have to be DNA, but now it's super tight-lipped, and I, I really don't understand that. So what we can take from the credit card investigation is that Nuzo had told Brooks directly and repeatedly that he believed Sue Tarasco was a rat. Brooks lied 
and stated that he hadn't been in contact with Nuzo around the time of the murder that whole weekend. That was a lie. Brooks stated that he was at work during the time that Sue Taraskowitz had disappeared and it was ultimately murdered. That was a lie. He ended up going to prison for lying to the FBI in this case. He got a pass. He got probation on the credit card case because he ratted everybody else out. So I don't know what happened to the indictments in terms of the murder case. It just seems no true bill was given by the grand jury. And I know the U.S. attorney was still working on it, as was the FBI, as was Massachusetts State Police and Revere Police. But at this point, very limited public information was provided. It seems to be where this case died. It seemed as though to me that the Traraskowitz family was on a track towards justice and it just dropped off. I do believe that the answer to this case lies with Mr. Nuzo and Mr. Brooks. I don't know what's happened. There's like radio silence on this case. Every time I see an anniversary come up, it breaks my heart. And the focus during these anniversary telecasts, newscasts, seems to be more on Sue and the harassment she suffered. But the murder investigation, I believe, comes from the credit card scam. And most people don't know that. All they really know about in New England and nationwide is these billboards. And that was a great idea. But people need to know that there are legitimate suspects or persons of interest in this case. I hope and pray for the Traskwitz family that some new information comes to light. Somebody has a conscience or some DNA is developed from Sue Traskwitz's car. But I'm going to have to leave you there, guys, because that's all I have for you. Case is still unsolved. So there's also something else I need to relay to you, that there is still an act of $250,000 reward in this case. $250,000, okay? So that should be publicized more. These guys will flip on each other for that and less. So there it is, Sue Tarasqua's case. When it's solved, I'm going to come back and do another one on it. Okay, I'll do another episode on this case. But I got to leave you there, guys. Have a great weekend. Listen to Boston Confidential next week, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks.